A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been sponsored by the 20-plus Minute Daf with Rabshol Greenwald. Maseches Beitza begins this coming Thursday. So, you want to join in with the Daf Yoyimi? Join in. I use it uh, occasionally, not every day, but when I need to, I use it. I don't use it on Shabbos, for instance. But it's so convenient to use. It's concise, clear, very engaging, interesting. Um, it's good for when you want to review the Daf, when you're in a hurry. It's a great summary. summary. It's really perfect for almost any scenario. And when you're looking for more spiritual and meaningful content than Jewish history, so might then definitely to study Daf Yemi and to jump in again if you've dropped out and, you know, fallen by the wayside. So Maseches Beitza is a great time for new beginnings. And join in with 20-plus Minute Daf with Rabshol Greenwald. I listened uh, to it. Like I said, I, I've, I've listened to it. I've used it. And it's it's I'm really, you know, blown away by its clarity and its geschmack. And, and uh, unlike me, he also sticks to his 20-plus minutes. Um, he doesn't go like uh, like way over time, which is very condu- conducive to scheduling and time management. And I will, of course, attach the appropriate links in the description and the jo- J- Jewish History Soundbites uh, social media platforms. Um, you know, it, it, uh, it twenty plus uh, uh, twenty plus minute daf streams on Torah anytime. It's also available on its own website, twenty minute daf.com and podcast platforms. It's highly recommended. Um, before I get to today's subject, I want to mention that there's this campaign going on by run by the Agudas Yisrael, and tonight um, I I will have the privilege of participating by giving a bit of a history of the Agudas Yisrael in Poland and Europe and in, in the United States, the Agudas Yisrael of America. So a bit of a historical overview, um, which is taking place tonight. It's um, it it was it's pre-recorded, obviously, but. Uh, but it's, I think it came out uh, pretty good. So if you might want to join that campaign um, and hear a little bit about the history of the Aguda. Uh, we got some great feedback from previous episodes. And the most recent one was about the five aliyahs, the five waves of immigration to the land of Israel, to Palestine. But I did mention, when I mentioned that Baron Maurice uh, Hirsch of Paris, one of the wealthiest one of the wealthiest Jews in the world, one of the wealthiest people in the world, period, 
um, funded, uh, partially funded some of the agricultural colonies, and I mentioned his mustache, and uh, I, I I got some great feedback from that. I mentioned Goose Gossage has a historic mustache, so so there were several submissions about the greatest mustaches in history. One of them was Franz Josef, the emperor of the Austro-Hungarian Empire for 68 years. He had quite an impressive mustache as well. And a few people mentioned to me Raleigh Fingers. And it's funny because I said Gossage, and I don't know what it is with closers and mustaches and what the connection with that to be. And I leave that for everyone's imagination. Today happens to also be September 1st. And it is the 82nd anniversary of the outbreak of World War II, which caused such great destruction on the world stage and also especially so for the Jewish people. A couple of years ago, there was a fantastic episode on Jewish History Soundbites about the outbreak of the war and its effect on Jewish history, so you can check that out as well. But more importantly, the Hebrew date is the 24th day of El, which is the yard site of the Chavetz Chaim. And Rabbi Sromer HaKohen Kagan Pupko, um, who is one of the most beloved figures in modern Jewish history. And there's so much history swirling around his life story and career. So I figured even though there have been several episodes already devoted to Jewish history soundbites about different facets of the Chavetz Chaim's lifetime, I still would like to cover yet another aspect, it's never-ending, of the Chavetz Chaim's life today. Um, so you could check out all the other episodes of on the Chavetz Chaim Jewish History Soundbites as well. Today we'll focus on the Chavetz Chaim and his relationship with the land of Israel, including primarily his various attempts to actually move to the land of Israel, to Eretz Yisrael. And there's an entire chapter devoted to it in the classic biography uh, of the Chavetz Chaim authored by his student, Ramesh Meir Yashar, who was a rabbi in New York. Um, and I'll start off actually with my Harazesim tours. Whenever the tourists make it back to Israel, we'll start doing the Harazesim tours again, among other tours. And uh, and and the and one of the, the grave sites I bring the groups to is surprising to many, but we have the the grave sites of Remendel Zaks and his wife Rebetzin Fagi Zaks. And Rebetzin Fagi Zaks was the youngest daughter, the youngest child of the Chavetz Chaim from a second marriage, and she is buried at Harazesim. And uh, here you have, you know, someone who their their fame was in Poland, in in Europe, by her by her illustrious father. Her last years were spent in the United States. She was able to escape through Japan at the beginning of the war and make it to New York, and and that's where she passes away. But yet she's buried in Harazesim. And so here, even though, and she's the only child of the Chavetz Chaim buried, buried there. Most of them are buried in, in Europe, in several different places, a couple in, in Raden, um, a couple in, uh, in other places, uh, scattered across Eastern Europe. One is buried in New York, but, um, but here she's buried in, in the land of Israel. So she made it, at least, to be buried there. Um, and uh, the Chavetz Chaim, and he attempted to move to Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, Palestine, however you, you want to refer to it. Um, recently, there's been a very interesting pamphlet published about this subject in Hebrew, um, about the Chavetz Chaim and his attempts to come to, uh, to Eretz Yisrael, about the costs and the funding and all that. It's actually quite interesting. Um, now, there's been great people who attempted to move here, to move there, for if you're listening from another place, throughout history. 
Um, why? Because, you know, there's all these spiritual yearnings and tradition and, and, uh, and uh, it, was, it was, you know, very much not a, <coughs> excuse me, a political thing. It was a very, very traditional, very, very, you know, religious, spiritually uplifting uh, for individuals, for groups. Um, famously, the Vilna Gain and as well as the Baal Shem Tev, uh, earlier, uh, famously tried to unsuccessfully to come there. So it's interesting that the the Chavetz Chaim is joining a pretty prestigious list of people who unsuccessfully tried to come. And there have been others as well. Uh, some great tzaddikim of the Hasidic movement did make their way over, even beyond the real famous ones, such as Rabbi Nachman Mendel of Itebsk and Rabbi Rom Kalisk, who led a group, the Aliyah Hasidim, in 1777. But many others came as individuals. There was Rabbi Gershon Kittiver, the brother-in-law of the Baal Shem Tev, who was pretty much the first one to come, followed shortly thereafter by Rabbi Nachman of Haradenka, a close student of the Baal Shem Tev, Later on, one of the greatest Rebbes in Europe, when he retired at the end of his life, so to speak, Reb Meisha Biderman of Lelov, the son of Reb David of, of Lelov, the, the student of the Naim Elimelech, is Reb Meisha Biderman of Lelov, the second Rebbe of the dynasty. At the end of his life, he moves to the land of Israel. And there, from, from there on in, the, uh, the uh, Lelov dynasty finds itself in the land of Israel, the first Hasidic dynasty to transfer themselves as such. Um, his son, he came with his son, Rabbi Lazar Mendel, and um, he had also Rabbi Chaim Tirer of Chernovitz, the Bear Mayim Chaim, Rabbi Ram Doiv of Avruch, the Basayin, who I devoted an episode to quite a way back, Rabbi Shleim Eibshitz, the Arve Nachal, and there were others, uh, others as well. It's definitely a topic of its own, of individual tzaddikim who decided to come on their own initiative. Later on, some of the greats of the Musar movement in their old age settled in, in the land of Israel as well. There was Rabbi Yisuf Zundel of Salant, who was the teacher of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, which kicked off the entire Muslim movement. And then there were students of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. Rabbi Naftali Amsterdam came in his old age to Yerushalayim. Rabbi Yisrael Blazer, Rabbi Yisrael Petterberger. A large chunk of the altar of Kelm's family, though the altar of Kelm, Rabbi Yisrael Ziv himself, did not come, but quite a bit of his family members did. His brother, Rabbi Yilei Breida, um, his, um, the altar of Kelm's daughter also, daughter and husband moved there, after uh, after the altar's passing, together with their mother, together with uh, with the altar's widow, and then his other more famous daughter, Nechama Liba, she was married to the aforementioned Rabbi Leib's son, Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch, her first cousin, in other words, Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Breide, who was later on the head of the Talmud Torah in Kelm. And Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch almost moved there. He was visiting his father, Rabbi Leib, the, the brother of the altar of Kelm, who I mentioned, and, uh, and he was almost going to stay. And there's interesting, there's a flurry of correspondence Rabbi Yochum Levavitz, other students of Kelm, sent him these letters that they, they need him back in Kelm, he can't stay in, in, in Yerushalayim, he, they need him back, and they convinced him to come back. So he returned. And members of the Frank family, which were students of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter from Alexut and Kovna, they also moved early on. So you have, uh, you have this interesting movement. Now, for the most part, the members of the Musa movement, they resided in in what was known as Chatzar Strauss, the Strauss Courtyard, which a German Jew named Shmuel Strauss had purchased for the rabbis of the Musar movement in the Musrara neighborhood in Yerushalayim. And this kind of became the headquarters of the Musar movement in the Holy City. So it's a very interesting, also an interesting story. So, um, and of course there's rank and file people. These are all famous individuals. And I think, it's actually with the general trend in recent historiography and research, has been to in a move towards social history, and hopefully it will reach the uh, this trend will reach the Orthodox community 
uh, one day. I, I really hope so, because I think it's a pity that the general focus tends to be on the great and famous, on the celebrities, on the leaders, on the rabbis, because I personally, in this specific context, and this is the same case with all of Jewish life, I know some remarkable stories of immigration to Palestine done at great sacrifice and interesting stories of in history by individuals who are just regular people. And obviously immigration to Palestine is just one example, but in general the trend towards social history should be seen as a positive development and hopefully uh, we'll get there soon as well. So the question, of course, is once the late 19th and early 20th century uh, arrives is, is the move to the old Yishuv or the new Yishuv? And these people who move there, are they to the old or new Yishuv? And what's the difference? And the difference is, obviously, if you're going to belong to one of the Kailals and, and, and live off the Chalukah, live in a place like Yerushalayim or, or, or one of the other holy cities like Tzvas or Tveria, or to be part of the developing new Yishuv, which is a different type of impact, different type of influence that is going to be had. I recently had an episode in the Chazanish where I discussed his decision to settle in the new Yishuv, uh, in in B'nai Brak, um, and um, and in that regard, and the same is going to be with the Chavetz Chaim's attempts to move here, where he was going to settle in the new Yishuv as well. So each one who did make the move had to decide. It was a conscious decision, really. Sometimes it was just practical, where they found a place of residence, but very often it was a conscious decision, sometimes an even ideological decision about where they wanted to, what company they wanted to have, what social environment they wanted to have, and what kind of impact they wanted to have on the community, whether it was going to be settling in the new yeshiv or the old one. So the Chavetz Chaim is definitely not unique in this regard of being a great individual who wants, who has this yearning and striving to come to move to the land of Israel. Yet his story contains some unique aspects to it. In fact, my dear friend and colleague, Davi Safir, he found a newspaper report recently from 1925 that mentions that the Chavetz Chaim is on his way to Palestine. It's actually on his way. That's the newspaper reported. And in the same breath, in that same little uh, news item, it's mentioned that the, the immigration of the Ablona Rebbe, Rabbi Cheskel Taub, who today is quite famous about his, his, uh, his founding of Kfar Hasidim and his ultimate uh, you know, lack of success uh, with that endeavor and his leaving Yiddishkeit as a result and moving to California and a whole tragic and fascinating story until his return to uh, Jewish observance at the end of his life. So um, so this news item contains both of them. It's the Chavitz Chaim and the Ablana Rebbe are both moving. So the, the two went in very different directions uh, very, very quickly, but it seems that the aspirations were similar at the outset and it was quite common at the time. The Chavitz Chaim, towards the end of his life, had something of an obsession with Messianism, with the coming of Mashiach, the arrival, its imminent arrival. He founded the Kachim Kail and Radin, which was to study the laws of Kachim or the Beis HaMikdash. He published Svarim on Kachim, the Medrash, and his own Pirish, and his own Halachas on Kachim. He was, he was involved with it in the imminent arrival of Mashiach and the preparation for that. Um, so that's, that's always on his mind, and that's, that, uh, that's, that's always something that he's constantly discussing. But um, here we're talking about his actually trying to move there. He tried to do it several times. One part of the story which separates the Chavetz Chaim from similar migrants at the time was the fact that the attempted move of his residence there to, to the land of Israel was from a relatively young age. It was much more common to go when one was elderly, very often to live one's, one's last year, live out one's last years there, or even explicit, explicitly expressing one's will to die there. Um, yet the Chavetz Chaim yearned to go when he was still in his 30, in his 40s, excuse me. And this yearning and practical execution of his plan continued for the rest of his life over the next half a century. When the Chavetz Chaim was still in his low 40s, were presumably in his low 40s, since his exact age 
is still a matter of dispute and was never verified, but we're talking about the year 1880. The local rabbi in Raden moved to the Holy Land, and he sent a letter to the Chavetz Chaim, whom he was close with, describing his lofty spiritual discoveries of the life there, and this increased the young Chavetz Chaim's own yearnings to go as well. So a year later, in 1881, while still relatively a young man, his oldest daughter Gittel got engaged to Reb Aaron Hakain, who I discussed in the episode about the Chavetz Chaim's family in another time, which you can refer to as well, who's the author of the Avedis HaKarbonis. And in the Tznaim, the pre-marriage contract, as it were, that they write up by the ceremony, the Chavetz Chaim stipulated that he would provide the customary kest support, the support that son-in-law was, was the custom at the time in Torah studies, it was called kest, and he, you know, you did it for a certain amount of years, so he wrote that he would support him with this kest for several years, but he stipulated that should he move to the land of Israel in the interim, then he is absolving himself of his commitment, and his son-in-law cannot restrain his travel in order to receive the continued support. So even at this point, from the Chavetz Chaim's point of view, the departure was to be in the near future, or at least he wanted to keep that option open, that it should be in the near future. When his next daughter, Sarah, got engaged to Reb Hirsch Levinson a couple of years later in 1884, he made the same condition in the Tnoim. This would become a theme throughout his life, because when he married his second wife, Miriam Freda, when the Chavetz Chaim himself remarries his second wife, Miriam Freda, in 1904, he did so on condition <clears throat> that she consent to their moving to the Holy Land when the time came. And when his youngest daughter, who I mentioned earlier, Fega, married Reb Zaks in 1923, he once again included the now familiar clause in the Tanaim. So over the span for almost a half a century, the Chavetz Chaim continues with his striving to go, along the way making some practical arrangements to carry out his goal. If we take a te- step back and go into speculation mode for a moment, which I'm always wary of doing, but it's fun. So one comes across the very curious scenario. Had the Chavetz Chaim succeeded in moving in the 1880s to the land of Israel, that might have changed the trajectory of Jewish history, of traditional Jewry in Eastern Europe in a very profound way. The whole story of the Radin Yeshiva, the popularity of the Chavetz Chaim's farm, his national leadership, his initiatives, the Agudas Yisrael, the Vada Yeshivas, everything the Chavetz Chaim was involved with in Eastern Europe over the course of the next 50, 60 years, it wouldn't have happened because he would have been in the land of Israel. So that's something to think about, which how much that would have changed. A fascinating anecdote uh, is the Chavetz Chaim's meeting with the Polish president Ignacy Moschitsky in 1929. And the the uh, the Polish Ignacy Moschitsky, this Polish president, he visits the Chavetz Chaim in Raden. This is a historic visit, which is almost completely unheard of at the time. Now, many people, I've found, like to talk about the Chavetz Chaim's visit the following year, a year later, 1930, to the Polish Prime Minister, not the President, Polish Prime Minister, Kazimierz Bartel, in Warsaw, in the capital. Well, to me, the fact that a year earlier, the Polish President himself visits the Chavetz Chaim in his hometown, in the backwards Raden, which didn't even have a train station, is much more unprecedented than the Chavetz Chaim going to visit the Prime Minister in Warsaw. And it took, when did it take place, by the way? Today, 24, the 24th day of Elul, 1929, four years to the day before the Chavetz Chaim, the Chavetz Chaim's passing. So it's also a good thing to mention that it happened actually today. Either way, the Chavetz Chaim's focus in that meeting when he went to greet the Polish president, this, uh, this fellow, was about the government regulation of religious affairs and internal Jewish communal affairs and reforms projected reforms in Jewish education that the Chavetz Chaim was concerned about. But in his initial greeting to the to to Ignacy Moshitsky, 
He made a point of expressing his gratitude for the actions of the Polish consul in Palestine, who had extended his assistance to the victims of the most recent deadly riots in Palestine, which had taken place just a few weeks before. Talking about Elul 1929, so the 1929 Hebron riots, which was also in Jerusalem, was in the summer, it was in August of 1929. So um, many of the Jewish victims were Polish citizens who had recently arrived in Palestine. So he expressed his gratitude because apparently the Polish consul had done a lot to assist the victims. So the land of Israel and the welfare of its inhabitants were constantly in the Chavitz Chaim's consciousness. Uh, several attempts were pushed off of his moving there in the midst of his great Torah projects in Russia and later on in the Second Polish Republic, um, but he always was attempting. So after World War I, while he was still in exile in Russia, the Chavitz Chaim made plans to travel to Odessa, south to the port of exit in Odessa, in November of 1920. It was even reported in the newspapers that he was already on his way, together with his son-in-law, Hirsch Levinson. But more delays arrived, and soon after, his beloved uh, son-in-law, Hirsch passed away. Uh, so, so the Chavitz Chaim needed now to rehabilitate the Radin Yeshiva, and they began, began the long trek out of the Soviet Union back to independent Poland. And once he got there, he also founded the Vada Yeshivas to rebuild Torah life, and these plans to move to Palestine were therefore temporarily shelved. Um, the, uh, in 1925, he, he was decided that now he's ready to leave. The Jewish community in the Yishev made preparations for his imminent arrival. A home was even purchased for him in Petach Tikva, again in the new Yishev. And the applications were submitted and the paperwork was done. A lavish welcome was planned for his ar- arrival. What I happen to find interesting is that the Chavetz Chaim did not even consider joining the old Yishev in Yerushalayim. He was moving to the new Yishev, albeit, albeit the religious area of the new Yishev in Petach Tikva. There's probably lots to say on that point as well. And of course, another thing to speculate about, had the Chavetz Chaim succeeded in moving to Palestine in 1925, and he would have settled in the new Yishev in Petach Tikva, what effect would that have had on religious life in the new Yishev? And just as importantly, what detrimental effect would that have had on the supposed religious leadership supremacy of the old Yishev if a personality like the Chavetz Chaim would settle and become the religious leader in the new Yishev? So it's a lot of things to think about, and uh, we can speculate and have many uh, Thursday night and Shabbos meal conversations about these type of uh, speculations. But Chavetz Chaim had very strong connections. It's his connections to the old Yishev were quite strong, and it was members of the old Yishev who were the ones who facilitated the Chavetz Chaim's immigration plans. On the fourth yard side of the Chavetz Chaim in 1937, Rav Blau, who was the head of the Godes Yisrael in the old Yishev in Yerushalayim, related an interesting story in connection with the Chavetz Chaim's plans to move to the Holy Land. It was, it, he, he, the story that he related was that it was on Cholomite Sukkot of 1924, and a Simchas Beis was being celebrated in the Sukkah of Reb Chaim Zanfeld, the leader of the, of the Aguda, Agudas Yisrael in Eretz Yisrael, and the titular head of the Eidah Haredes. And a fellow by the name of David Puch uh, approached Moshe Blau, Bloy, and uh, confided that the Chavetz Chaim is coming and needs three things taken care of. Care, care of. He needs entry permits for him and his family. He needs 100 Palestine pounds to fund the venture. And he needs a home. For some reason, it was important to keep it a big secret. I wasn't sure why. And this fellow, Putsch, said he'll take care of the home, while Ramesh Bloy was tasked with the other two. He put the visa application issue to Reb Chaim Zanunfeld and recommended that 
that Rukhaim Zonnefeld contact the British mandatory authorities directly himself as the leader to request the entry permits. Also not clear why, but it seems that great haste was needed to carry out this project and everything needed to be done within the next uh, couple of days, which made Bloy shudder as he realized that Rukhaim Zonnefeld would be required to sign the visa application and and this great uh, um, this great Gadol, this great Torah leader had never written on Cholamite. He was very particular about that. Uh, but then Bloy was reassured with the elderly sage's reply. He said, To have the Chavetz Chaim come to Eretz Yisrael, I would sign on Hoshana Rabbah with both hands. And that's how eager the, the Yishuv was uh, excited to have the Chavetz Chaim in their midst. With that hurdle overcome, Bloy returns to the funding, which was no easy task in poverty-stricken Jerusalem. On Simchas Tari, he is walking to Shari Chesed and he bumps into an acquaintance who begins regaling him with a story of the Ruach HaKadosh of the Chavetz Chaim. Providence has it that he's telling a story about the Chavetz Chaim just at this time. So Bloy says to him, you know we can bring him here if we obtain 100 pounds. The guy decides eventually to donate the funds himself. So, uh, so there he got the money also, which I find interesting because it seems that now, in light of that story, that the custom of Yerushalmi is going to collect money in Shari Chesed during the Sukkah season seems to have already begun then, at that time. So in 1925, the Chavetz Chaim has plans to leave after Pesach. Reb Chaim Oizer, Grzynski, and other great Torah leaders were very concerned about this because they wanted to have him around. They asked him not to leave. They, they still needed his leadership at the helm of the Vada Yeshivas and to organize, help organize and lead Jewish life in Poland at this very challenging time. The Chavetz Chaim protested that he was old and feeble and couldn't do much. Rabbi Chaim Ezer replied, citing his wife's grandfather, Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, that when the elderly, the elderly individual sits at the table, then the table is conducted differently. In other words, even if Chavetz Chaim claims that he's old and feeble, but his very presence is needed, which permeates the atmosphere and 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 you know motivates the younger uh, activists to be able to accomplish what needs to be done. So the um, Chavetz Chaim was finally persuaded to delay his departure for five months to wrap up these communal affairs until El of 1925. So once again, this time of year of El plays a role in the Chavetz Chaim's storied life. He packs his belongings, his books, his printing material, his personal possessions. Most of it he even shipped. He shipped already. It was there. He literally, literally was out the door. He then writes a farewell letter to the Jewish people. An amazing act. Unbelievable. He's... Here he's, he's cognizant of his leadership role of the Jewish people, and he's leaving the diaspora, as it were. And he writes, he authors, he pens a farewell letter to the Jewish people. Uh, it's a profound document. It's basically his living will, will and testament. He talks about the arrival of Mashiach, and he primarily focuses on the strengthening of Torah study and Torah institutions, which was the focus of his entire life, and especially in his later years. Um, and uh, and now everyone goes into a panic again. The Chavetz Chaim's leaving. What are we going to do? A meeting was held in Vilna in Reb Chaim home to convince the Chavetz Chaim to stay. A committee of Russia Yeshiva are 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 appointed to discuss how to prevent him from doing it, or at least delay it. And they send Rav Baruch Ber Leibovich, the Kamenetz Rosh Yeshiva, as their emissary, as their representative, to beseech the Chavetz Chaim to stay a bit longer. Rav Baruch Ber implores him to wait until after the holiday season. Chavetz Chaim says, Am I a prisoner here? I can't be allowed to leave as I please. Rebach Ber began to cry. And, and he said, We need you. We need your help to stabilize the dire situation with the yeshivas. And I guess, I don't know, I don't know why, but perhaps because of the tears of Rebach Ber, I'm not sure. It 
So it's hard to discern exactly what convinced the Chavetz Chaim, but he finally conceded. He postpones his departure until the last valid day of his travel documents, which was October 27th. The day before that, on October 26th, the Chavetz Chaim's wife got sick and had to go to Vilna to consult a physician. So those plans were once again thwarted. He tries again, applying for new travel documents, and as soon as his wife was healthy and ready to travel, he decides that this time he's going to keep the plans a secret, and that would enhance the, uh, the chances of the operation's success. On the very day that he receives his second set of travel documents, his youngest daughter, Fagy Zaks, falls ill. And she eventually got better, but by the time she got better, this time the Chavetz Chaim himself was getting old and weak, and his doctors advised him not to make the strenuous journey in his precarious state of health. The Chavetz Chaim finally resigned himself to fate, that he would be unable to make the journey, and unable to make the move, and he accepted the new reality. His home in Petach Tikva was later known as Beit HaChavetz Chaim, and though he never resided in it, it was purchased on his behalf, so it got that title, and it was later used by the Lomja Petach Tikva Yeshiva, so at least it was used for, uh, for a, nice, uh, a nice purpose. Uh, he, kept, he, he never gave up. He said if, uh, if, I, if he gets stronger, then he'll still make the trip, but that never happened. Uh, it's worth mentioning a, just one or two other tidbits of the Chavetz Chaim and his connection to the land of Israel. There are two things that bothered him about the emerging new Yishuv, which is fascinating because uh, to a certain extent they still exist today. Um, first of all, the disunity among the community, among religious and secular, within the religious community, especially within the religious community, really bothered him. Disunity, and that disturbed him a lot. He used to talk about it. And the second thing is that the Yishev was being built not on Torah foundations, not on Torah principles. He warned that the Jewish people have a body and a spirit. A spirit without a body is incomplete, but the spirit can still exist as its own entity. But a body without a soul is just a clump of earth and is worth nothing. So he said Torah observance is the spirit of the Jewish people, while the promised land is the body. And uh, therefore uh, the, the Yishev has to be built on Torah precepts, and it was very disturbing to him that it was not. Um, so... Another One other tidbit uh, is that there were family members of the Chavetz Chaim who did move there. The Chavetz Chaim's oldest son, Rebbe Pupko, was, is, is, I discussed him on the family of the Chavetz Chaim episode. Several, he didn't make it, he was in Rodden, he's buried in Rodden. But several of his descendants moved to Palestine and also the state of Israel. Two of his daughters, two of Rebbe Pupko's daughters, moved to Israel from the Soviet Union in the late 1970s. He had a son, um, Benzion Pupko, who was killed in Auschwitz with, with much of his family, lived in Belgium uh, during the Holocaust. But two of his sons uh, survived and moved to Israel in 1949. Another granddaughter of Rebleib, uh, Pupko, uh, named Freda, named for the Chavetz Chaim's first wife. It's interesting, both of the Chavetz Chaim's wife uh, were named Freda, ironically. So she moves to Palestine in 1932. While the Chavetz Chaim is still alive, she seems to have been the first family member to move. And uh, she was more distant from traditional Jewish life, to say the least. And she married a year later and received a letter from her great-grandfather in honor of her wedding, expressing regret that he couldn't participate in the festivities from the Chavetz Chaim himself. So her first child is born shortly after the Chavetz Chaim's passing and named for her illustrious uh, descendant. Um, so, uh, excuse me, uh, ancestor. <laughs> this descendant is named for his illustrious ancestor. And yes, this fellow, Yisrael Meir Gudevich, is actually still alive today and is a retired architect living in Tel Aviv. Um, I'll end off with another seemingly lasting influence of the Chavetz Chaim's attempt to move to the land of Israel. It seems that it's possible that he also inspired the Chazayin Ish to make his move 
to the land of Israel. The Chazanish wrote in one of his letters that it is known how much the Chavetz Chaim longed to go there. So possibly that that had an influence. Yet, as is a common dialectic in Torah circles, he also equates the Torah centers of Poland with the land of Israel by citing the same Chavetz Chaim. He writes in a different letter, the Chazanish, because the land of Poland, where the yeshivas are established, and the whole uh, the, and the holy Chavetz Chaim lives, yada yada yada, is is uh, is, is you know is like uh, is almost like living in the land of Israel, something like that. So along in that regard, so uh, it's it's interesting that that uh, you have b- both that dialectic and also that the impact of the Chavetz Chaim had on others in in that yearning. So this is Yehuda Gabra Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGabra.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.